On this prequel episode, we've got our Dr. Sleep fan reaction. We're learning about Upton Sinclair and previewing There Will Be Blood. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It's been a little while. We're ready to get back into the swing of things. We've got a full, fully stacked prequel episode. So we're going to get right into it with our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons, that's why. No new patrons this week, but we do want to thank our Academy Award winners, as always. And they are Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Kat Ensminger, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's Gratch, just Gratch. Shelby says, I tried picking good movies for a change to balance out the bad ones I requested before. That darn skag, V. Frank, and Alina Starkoff. Thank you all very much for supporting us. What bad movies did I was? I would have to look back and remember I was like, which ones. The last one I remember hurt, well, Dr. Sleep. And Dr. Then Sleep was a Yeah, those are both fine. Those are good movies. Assume, Maybe those were the good ones she's talking yes, about. Yes, I assume and, those were the good ones that she's talking about. I don't remember what. And not. I don't. I don't recall what the other. Uh, what the other ones would have been. But anyways, thank you all very much for supporting us at the top level, the Academy Award-winning patron level. We appreciate it very much. Let's see what people had to say about Doctor Sleep. Yeah. Well, you know that's just like. Uh... Your opinion, man. You had a question following our main episode. Yes, I forgot that I wanted to talk about this because I, I was going to, I couldn't, I realized I didn't ask this and I'm like, how did I not ask this? Because I, it was one of my favorite, if not my favorite scene in the book, or sorry, in the film. And I wanted to know if it came from the book. And that was the whole conversation between, at the bar between Danny and um, Jack slash Lloyd, the bartender. And because uh, I thought it was a great scene and I wanted to know, I was just trying to I was I couldn't believe that I didn't ask if that came from the book. It so does it, not. OK, <laughs> well, there you go. It would have been an easy, easy answer <laughs> asked and answered. Um, is there anything like that? Well, I guess the closest would be at the end. We get kind of a redemption. Does yeah. he like talk to Jack? Like, is no. there any? OK, so there's nothing where he like has a conversation with the spirit of. No, not his father no. or no, anything no, no. like that. OK. Okay, cool. All right. What do people have to say about Dr. Sleep? All right. On Patreon, we had two votes for the movie, one for the book. Opens up for nobody, said, even before watching the movie, I knew I'd like the movie better. I think Stephen King is best when filtered through other people. The less input he has, the better. His concepts and themes are interesting. They have potential. It's just the writing I hate. He writes like a dweeb. <laughs> I don't know if they're talking about uh, Stephen King or George Lucas right now, but I think this, uh, this, this criticism could apply to both of them. Oh. Like the literary version of a garbage pail kid's card, like huh. that pathetic kid in high school who says edgy things because he's hoping it'll make you squirm. Um, that I can kind of agree with. Uh, I don't think anything he writes is scary. It's grimy. It makes me feel disgust but at the author and not at what's happening in the story. 
I thought maybe my opinion would have changed since high school, but it gets under my skin in the same way. Not in the intended way. It just makes me frustrated. But whatever, with time I'll forget all the nonsense that made me mad and remember only the tiny bits that had potential. Anyway, my being a king hater aside, wishing y'all some happy stress-free times ahead. There you go. I will say, I actually don't think I've ever read Stephen King, or beyond excerpts. Mm-hmm. And with, if I did, it would have been in like high school into like some excerpts. And I do not remember. Uh, the only any... King that I've read has been for this yeah, show. Yeah. So make of that what you will. Um, but your, your experience <laughs> is not exactly the same as, as this comic. No, is. no, I, I, I like his stories. Um, I, I mean, at least what I've read, I have enjoyed. Um, I totally can understand what this person is talking about though yeah. i i do think there is like an air of like um trying to provoke a response right outside of like does this work within yeah what i'm actually writing do you know what i mean yeah well okay i mean one thing that jumps to mind is maybe the 9-11 thing yeah like having the baby predict 9-11 that might be one of those instances where it's like well this will get a reaction more so than is this a good idea for yeah does this work yeah or am i being edgy right i don't know if that 9-11 and i don't know if i would call it edgy per se i might call it like a little out of touch just kind of strange (laughs) but but yeah um, that's fair but he writes like a dweeb is hilarious it's very funny (laughs) our next comment was from steve from arizona and who said, I'm not really a horror guy, so I rarely get interested in King's work, with a huge exception to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Yeah, King hates it, but the weird theories about the movie make it far more interesting, make it a far more interesting watch. Um, watch the documentary on Room 237 or the forwards and backwards cut of the movie. Anyway, I'm not terribly interested. The inter- documentary is just called Room 237. That's the name of the documentary. Oh, okay. I think there might be another one. I don't know what the forwards and backwards cut of the movie. I don't know if that's the name of a. I don't know what that is. I don't know. I'm not. Maybe that just means there's like a cut of the movie that like changes the order of stuff. But Room 237 is a documentary about Mm. all of the conspiracy theories and stuff around the film. Mm. It's just like an exploration of like all the people that think it's like a. He was talking about how he faked the moon landing. He was part of the faked moon landing and blah, 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 all this different stuff. So. It's an interesting. I haven't seen. I don't. I think I've seen the documentary. I can't remember if I did. It's been years, um, but I remember it being interesting. All right. Um, anyway, I'm not terribly interested in Doctor Sleep and the convoluted world King creates. I absolutely dislike it when an IP does this. Uh, Brian asked for franchises that went wild with more money. This happens frequently in sci-fi. Uh, Blade Runner 2049, Back to the Future One versus Two. Pitch Black versus The Chronicles of Riddick, The Blair Witch Project versus Blair Witch 2, The Matrix versus Matrix Reloaded, John Wick versus John Wick Chapter 2, and so forth. Most of the time, at least to me, more money and more plot threads means they're going to run this thing into the ground for better or for worse. The goal is never artistic integrity anymore, just how much cheap cash we can make and how much free advertising we can get from loser anti-woke critics on YouTube. I would have preferred to say leave The Shining alone, but of course someone was going to make this book. Also, Brian, avoid Casablanca. A couple of good scenes, but mostly overrated. 
Okay, so going back to the the previous thing, Brian asked for, or the middle here, Brian asked for franchises that went wild with more money. It did not. <laughs> uh, just just <laughs> to kind of clarify, kind of thinking of trying to think of examples. We, but it wasn't with more money. It was who who made a sequel and and expanded the universe within the story to mm-hmm. this thing that is well beyond the realms of what is contained within the first okay, story. Yeah, the, there has is a nothing to there. do with yeah. money and what I was talking about, at least. Um, I will say that I think a very good example that Steve here did mention a very good example of this uh, that I had not thought of again, mainly because I have not seen the second film in this series or in this that he mentions here. And that is pitch black versus the Chronicles of Riddick, because that is very similar from mm-hmm. what I under- know of Chronicles of Riddick. I've seen Pitch Black, and Pitch Black is just a, like a horror film about these people who crash on a planet that is at night, evil, like terrifying uh, monsters that eat people come out, yeah. and they're they have to stay in light or generate light sources because otherwise they'll get killed. And one of the characters in there is this character named Riddick, who's like the super hardened badass criminal who like is with all the rest of these people, and he's like helping. It's been, you know, he mm-hmm. he's like this badass and we don't know any of his backstory or anything. And then Chronicles of Riddick is actually a prequel, from my knowledge, that goes back and explores like his whole backstory and introduces his whole planet and the world where he comes from. And it's all this like political st- like it. It becomes this big, huge, like almost like fantasy epic mm-hmm. whereas the first movie is like a very contained like horror film like again mm-hmm. so i think that's actually a very good example kind of of um a similar idea of of to like what dr sleep feels like um the other ones i would disagree with because i think within the rest of those the lore it's already there in the first one maybe not expanded quite as much which I guess you could make a little bit of an argument for that with with The Shining, but I think it's very different. Like, so like for example, Back to the Future and Back to the Future Two, those are it's the Back to the Future Two is the same thing. Like, there's nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just it's more. There's more going on, and this kind of is like we're we're getting into the conflation between they got more money, so they like did like more did stuff more with their versus like the 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 people writing it just had this idea for some crazier like world within yeah the story or within the universe of the story that the first one was set in um because i think the same thing with like blade runner 2049 um i blade runner the first one has just as much world building and lore and and stuff mm-hmm. i feel like as 2049 does yeah. 2049 and maybe explore some of that a little bit more maybe than the first one but it's not like a whole yeah. like completely different thing um, and also 2049 is a great film. So I don't know if, if, if these are all examples of good versus I would disagree because <laughs> I think uh, 2049 is great. I haven't seen Chronicles of Riddick. Matrix Reloaded is better than you remember. It's not good, but it has good stuff in it. Um, and also, that's another one where I, I would disagree because everything it, like sure, we expand on some things, but the world of the Matrix is all there in the first one. And like we're getting, we're setting up the, the them living on the the Nebuchadnezzar and all this sort, of, like all of the stuff that gets expanded on in the second one is already there in the first one. It's just kind of expanded. I have um, not seen the Matrix Reloaded, so I cannot weigh in. Yeah, but but like I said, I will say that I think that 
the Chronicles of Riddick and Pitch Black is like the perfect example of this, again, from what I know of Chronicles of Riddick, because I remember hearing about that movie and seeing trailers and being like, what? He's just some dude that's like a badass, like a, a, a in the in Pitch Black. And then all uh, we end up in this in, in Chronicles of Riddick. It's literally like they're like wearing fantasy armor. And it's like this whole thing, like yeah. Carl Urban is like in it. And it's like a whole thing. And it's just like, what? It's not remotely what you would have expected having watched Pitch Black. Um, and again, it's not really a sequel. It's a story set about one of the characters, but it's kind of similar to like Dr. Sleep in that way, where mm-hmm. it's not like a, a direct sequel. Whereas the other ones of these, some of them are like literal direct sequels. I haven't seen any of the Blair Witch, so I can't comment on that. And I don't remember. I think I've seen John Wick chapter two. Anyways, doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> point being, I don't I, I think you have one really good example of what I was talking about in here. I'm not sure the rest of them apply. But anyways, uh, and I probably won't ever see Casablanca. So there you go. Well, I'm not going to insist that we watch it. So probably not. Unless it's a book and we do it for the book. I don't <laughs> think it's a book. I hope it's not a book. I don't want to watch it again. Um, our last comment on Patreon was from Matilde who said, haven't had time to read the book, but I've seen the movie several times and love it more with each rewatch. Flanagan can do his best work when he has a big leeway with the original material, like what he did with The Haunting of Hill House and Bly Manor. He had his work cut out for him with Dr. Sleep, pleasing the fans of the book, fans of the Kubrick film, and his own fans, all within one feature film and nothing more. In my opinion, he rose to the challenge. He managed to put his smart style of horror to the service of the story, integrated enough callbacks to the first movie, and told a fairly faithful version of the book from what I got from your analysis. As a Flanagan fan, it was nice to see some of his frequent collaborators in the cast, um, Violet, Wendy Torrance, Barry the Chunk, <laughs> Barry the Chunk um, Silent Sari, and The Bartender, and his favorite effects used as well like the eyes of the knot as they feed, very similar to the eyes in Midnight Mass. It is. I, I, yeah. I might give the book a read. I'm particularly tempted to see Billy survive. His death was such a punch to the stomach. Until then, I'm very satisfied with the movie and can't recommend Flanagan's other works enough. I, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of this. Um, I haven't seen a ton of other Flanagan stuff, but um, like I said, I, Midnight Mass was very good. And uh, I've always been since I saw Hush that first time randomly, I've been a big fan of that. Um, there's another one that I want to watch that I think Shelby just mentioned watching that I it's, I think it was his film before this one uh, before Dr. Sleep. And it's called it's a woman's name or something. And it's about this woman who and I because I watched the trailer after I was looking through some Flanagan stuff. It's a, it's another Stephen King adaptation. Oh. Um, so we could do it eventually. But it's uh, I, b- I believe it's a King adaptation, um, but it's about this woman and her husband. They go on a trip to oh Gerald's game. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They go on a like a, a weekend getaway uh, to spice up him. their what? I didn't know that was him. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Um, and they go on like a trip and then uh, he like handcuffs her to the bed for sexy time and then has a heart attack. And she's like yeah. <laughs> st- in the middle of nowhere, chained to this bed. Uh, but then there's a bunch of other stuff that going on and it gets into some stuff anyways looks really interesting and yeah that is also mike flanagan okay um all right and stephen king so there you go all right on facebook we had zero votes for the movie and two for the book adam said i don't know that i can pick one or the other 
The book, excluding King's difficulty with endings, is a better sequel to the book version of The Shining, and the movie is a better sequel to the movie version of The Shining, which it seems obviously would be the case, but it makes each one good in different ways. The book's slow pace had more of a superhero or fantasy vibe compared to the movie, leaning more into the horror. Can I instead give my vote for Katie's laugh at Brian's Rowling joke? Because that was great. You can. Go for it. <laughs> You're allowed to. We don't have an option for that in the poll, but you can do it in writing here. And our other comment was from Luciana, who said, I also have a hard time choosing. I love King, but also love Flanagan. Ended up giving it to the book, but it was a damn close call. There you go. There you go. All right. On Twitter, we had five votes for the movie and one for the book. Kelly Napier said, I hate watching horror. I enjoy reading horror. That's interesting. Um, I get that. I, I, I mean, I guess. Yeah. It's just I can't think of a genre that I like enjoy reading that I don't like watching or vice versa. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just interesting. I, I, I can I can see that I can. That makes sense because I know people that don't like watching horror movies mm -hmm. and I'm not like a huge fan of horror movies, but mm -hmm. I don't think I would like reading it more than I like watching. I think I like them both like meh amount. <laughs> like I'm like middling <laughs> on both. It's just so, yeah, I don't know if there's a genre that I like really enjoy reading that I would hate watching or vice versa. But that's, that's interesting. Anyway, sorry. Um, so always the book in these cases. Now a quick note on working in hospice and Brian's comment about it leading someone to drink. My dad is a pastor. Don't worry. He's a cool one. And when he was in seminary, he did a CTE session, essentially student teaching for pastors as a hospice chaplain. He said it was the most rewarding work he did in seminary and that most of the hospice workers loved what they did. He said it was almost therapeutic for him to be with someone as they prepared to pass over and come to terms with whatever they needed to before they died. He talked to some people about God. He talked to others just about life whatever they needed. Of note, he's a recovering alcoholic, and when he was working in hospice, he said he felt very little pull to drink, probably because he spent most of his time with people who knew what it was to appreciate being present for your life. Working in hospice, according to him, was better than regular hospital work because the death was never sudden. You knew it was coming, so you were able to accept it. That's an interesting angle that I hadn't considered, and mm -hmm. I was just purely guessing based on what you see yeah. maybe, i guess what you see in media mostly of like yeah. people who work in, in in those kind of fields um but that does actually make a lot a lot of sense after reading or you know after hearing kelly's comment here uh, about it being different than something like and i guess maybe that even what is more so what i was like thinking of just like working in a hospital yeah, like or hospital working as like an ENT general. worker yeah. or something where you're just like horrible things. Yeah. Just seeing like awful, just horrible, horrible, things horrible all stuff the time. all the time. Um, obviously that would happen occasionally in hospice, but I think there is, I, it's a very good point that it's never, it's rarely if ever sudden it's, yeah. you know, it's like a thing. And so you can kind of it be like a more therapeutic thing. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's an, an, an interesting perspective that I hadn't considered. So thank you. Um, Shelby's ready for spooky season said for me the best parts of the book are all in the first half and the further it goes the more it leans on King's tropes and random eccentricities that don't add anything I need to talk about snake bite Andy in the book she's ace 
Now, I've read a lot of Stephen King, and problematic ace-passing characters occur now and again in his older books, and when they show up in his newer books, they use the word asexual to describe themselves. He knows the word, and I know he tries to be an ally to the queer community, but I'm not sure what he thinks he's doing. I think he doesn't know. I think, he's yeah. just an old out-of-touch guy who's like trying, yeah. kind of, but doesn't want to be um, bothered to do too much <laughs> like <yeah>. research. <laughs> it's probably what's going on there. Um, so Andy. In the book, she's immediately infatuated with Rose, a character she just met, which she thinks is strange because she tells us she's always identified as Ace. When she survives the transformation, Rose rewards her with marathon sex. You could argue Andy must be Grey Ace, except there's no indication she stops lusting after Rose, only realizes it's not going to happen, and so she gets a new partner in the group. They go on to have a very active sex life. And sure, a person's sex drive can change, but it really just reads like Rose is the siren archetype who shows Andy the error of her mm -hmm. ways. And I'm, I'm glad that Shelby brought this up because I meant to mention it in the episode and I didn't get to take notes on this book because I was reading it so fast. Yeah. So I just it just blew right out of my mind because I noticed that too <laughs> yeah. when Andy was like, oh, I've always thought I was asexual. And I'm, I was like, I, I haven't read enough King yeah. to know that he has like a history of iffy yeah. ace characters. So when I read that, I was kind of like, Okay. Yeah. Sure. sure. Right. Um and then as as that storyline progressed, I was kind of like, you know, I'm not saying that this couldn't be anybody's experience. Yeah. Like it, it could be it somebody's could be experience. It probably was somebody. But it but feels yeah. unlikely. <laughs> it just feels like somebody who doesn't, yeah. Yeah, it, yes. Um Shelby went on to say the movie sidestepped the topic of representation and made her much younger. In the book, she just looks young for her age. That fixes it, right? No more ace, now she's a child. Which is better, bad rep or erased and infantilized? I don't know, but I do like her in the movie. She's a fun character. The cast is great, and I love that Danny gets to use his powers more in the movie. One of my favorite parts is when he discovers Abra's gone and he has to figure out how to find her. In the book, they just have to wait for the tranquilizer to wear off enough that she can guide him through everything. Danny still has a lot of shining as an adult. Just let him use it. I love the mini found family with Danny and Abra. I especially like it in the movie because it doesn't decide that book Jack cheated on Wendy so that Danny can have living blood relatives and I guess have everything. Scare quotes. Um, the disrespect to book Jack. He's a well-intentioned disaster trying to clean up his act for his family before the hotel steps in. And this book just decides he had a mistress, too. Movie Jack, on the other hand, is just an asshole who gets no redemption arc. Good. I know what you mean about the maze scene being one too many references, but considering the story says everyone's, is everyone's mind is set up like a place, it makes sense for, to me that Danny... It makes sense to me that for Danny it would be the Overlook. It was a defining moment of his childhood. And finally, I thought it was brilliant that the movie takes the good ideas from the book's ending and repurposes the first book's ending into this movie. In the book The Shining, the Overlook possesses Jack to kill Danny, and here it possesses Danny to kill Abra, and the crucial point with the boiler stays. This is one of my favorite movie adaptations, so I'm giving it to the movie. Favorite movies and adaptations. Movies, favorite movies and adaptations. On Instagram, we had... Four votes for the movie and one for the book. 
And Jane Rendleman said, The movie gets my vote because I found the way the book expanded on the characters was needlessly complicated and kind of ruined some of the characterizations from the first book. There were also subplot points that I felt were just silly, and I'm glad the movie cut out, like Danny vomiting out the spirit of the great-grandmother. I prefer the book version of The Shining as opposed to the movie, especially its ending. So the way that this movie takes the ending from the first book and recontextualizes it to fit Danny's story gave a satisfying ending to the characters as well as themes about the cycle of abuse. Overall, I think this movie does a good job at being a sequel to The Shining, both book and movie. Yeah, that's and that's, I think, a thing that we kind of hear uh, a recurring thought that we're seeing from people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in, in reviews and stuff in general of this is that it's kind of an impossible task. Yeah. And somehow he pulled it off where he made a film that was both a satisfactory um, sequel to a book and a movie yeah. that are both different <laughs> in very distinct <laughs> ways uh, and similar in ways. And and finding a way to marry the both of those things. Um, and, and I think the thing that says it most is um, I think I read somewhere I said it in the episode that this made... This that Dr. Sleep's film adaptation made Stephen King hate The Shining less than he used to. Yeah. So that's about as high a praise <laughs> as you could get for your uh, for your film. What one? It was the movie. Nice. Um, with 10 votes to the books, five. There you go. All right. Time to move on and learn a little bit about our next author, Upton Sinclair. No matter what anybody tells you. Words and ideas can change the world. I knew nothing about Upton Sinclair going into this, aside from the jungle and meatpacking. Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing I'd ever Literally all I knew about him. Um, His Wikipedia article was a wild ride. Strap in. (laughs) Um, I came out in the living room to talk to you the other night while I was working on notes for this segment. Yeah. Um, I was like... Because the first part of his Wikipedia article is like socialism, workers' rights, working yeah. conditions, yeah. running for governor on a platform to end poverty. Yeah. And I was like sick, based. <laughs> nice. Look at this guy. <laughs> and then Wikipedia was like anti-Semitism. <laughs> like, oh, I was no. like, there it is. Uh, there it fucking ain't, ain't is. Ain't that always the way? <laughs> Oh, all right. Anyway, um, so Upton Beale Sinclair Jr. was an American writer, a muckraker, political activist, um, wrote nearly 100 books and other works across several genres. A little side note, because I'm not sure, I'm pretty sure muckraker is fairly american term a fairly american so and, and fairly a, old term yes yeah, so i wanted to provide provide a definition for it i remember learning about it in elementary school yeah. at some point or high oh, school always or in, in history classes yeah. yeah muckraking um so muckrakers were reform-minded journalists writers photographers during the progressive era in the united states um spanning roughly from the 1890s to the 1920s um who you know some would say worked to expose corruption and wrongdoings in established institutions. However, it was often done through, like, sensationalist publications and yeah. with sensationalist journalism techniques. Yeah. So 
we're kind of six of one, half a dozen it's of a, the other on on the, yeah, on the muckrakers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but Sinclair was probably the biggest one, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, most well known at this point, certainly. Um, so he was born in Baltimore in 1878. Uh, his father was an alcoholic, and his family was poor. But his maternal grandparents were wealthy, and he sometimes stayed with them, which gave him insight into um, how both the rich and the poor lived during the late 19th century. Um, And that affected him a lot and went on to greatly influence his books and the things that he chose to write about. Mm -hmm. Uh, He developed a love for reading uh, when he was very young, read every book that his mother owned, Uh, for a deeper understanding of the world, according to Wikipedia. He did not start school until he was 10 years old, um, but by age 14, he was putting himself through school and funding his tuition by writing jokes, dime novels, and magazine articles for Boys Weekly and pulp magazines. Um, He went on to study law at Columbia University, but he was more interested in writing. Uh, He learned several languages, including Spanish, German, and French, um, and again, supported himself through college by writing, Mm -hmm. um, which is pretty cool. Can't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, uh, He left Columbia without actually getting a degree um, and wrote four books across the next four years that were commercially unsuccessful, but critically well-received. Uh, four books that I'd never heard of King Midas, Prince Hagen, The Journal of Arthur Sterling, and uh, Manassas. So. <laughs> I mean, I've heard of Manassas, but I, I think it's just because there's a battle, the yeah, famous Civil War battle. Civ- and it is a Civil War novel, so I'm sure it was just named for that battle. At least I think it was a famous battle. I'm pretty sure. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. Um, this is a weird thing. <laughs> that I learned on his Wikipedia page. I told y'all it was a wild ride. Um, <clears throat> said, Upton became close with Reverend William Wilmerding Moore. <laughs> Moore? Wilmer Wilmerding Moore. Uh, Moore specialized in sexual abstinence and taught his beliefs to Sinclair. He was taught to, quote, avoid the subject of sex um, Sinclair was to report to Moore monthly regarding his abstinence. And I read that and I was like, oh, buddy, it sounds like you were groomed, sir. Yeah, maybe. In some way. I mean, it definitely sounds like a... Uh, it yeah. sounds a little weird sounds to me. strange, yes, I would agree with that. Um, and then later on in his uh, Wikipedia article, it said that he was opposed to sex outside of marriage and viewed it as necessary only for reproduction. He told his first wife that only the birth of a child gave marriage, quote, dignity and meaning. Hmm. Um, but despite that, he also had an affair with another woman during that first marriage. Nice. So I don't know what to make of all this. <laughs> to me, that sounds like some maybe I'm just purely speculating some maybe some some childhood issues flaring yeah. up with his alcoholic father and the. Yeah, maybe there was some like stuff there some that trauma. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, you know, purely speculating. Um, Moving forward, um, so in 1904, Sinclair spent seven weeks in disguise working undercover in Chicago's meatpacking plants 
to research his novel, The Jungle, um, which was a political expose that addressed conditions in the plants as well as the lives of poor immigrants. Um, when it was published two years later, it became a bestseller and greatly contributed to a public outcry that led to food safety reforms in the U.S., um, including the Meat Inspection Act. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the urban legend is that Teddy Roosevelt, who was president at the time, was eating a sausage and reading The Jungle yep. and got sick. I was like, nope, <laughs> doing something about this. Um, and now we arrive at the anti-Semitism. Hooray. <laughs> So with the income that he earned from the jungle, Sinclair founded um, like a, an artist's colony. Okay. Um, a Helicon home colony in Englewood, New Jersey. Um, and I was like, I was reading on, I was like, I've never heard of this. Um, so here's what Wikipedia had to say on Helicon. Um, Helicon home colony had a rigorous screening process for the applicants. Um, including a restriction against those of color. The right. application stated the colony should be open to any white person of good moral character. They explicitly bland, banned black people and less publicly banned Jews. Um, according to Perdita Buchan, um, writing in the 2007 book Utopia, New Jersey, Travels in the Nearest Eden, um, Sinclair himself quietly returned one rejected applicant's money, apologizing that the other members had voted against allowing Jewish people to join the Helicon home colony, even though Sinclair owned 160 of Helicon's 230 shares and ostensibly controlled about 70% of the board's vote and could have overruled anyone if he had thought it appropriate. Mm -hmm. So... It sounds like he was trying to be like, "Oh, sorry. Oh no. Oh no. They don't all want all you these in. other. I would, all, I would. I would have let you in, but all these other guys, yeah. they don't want you." Here. Also, kind of passing over the fact that on top of this, there was like no black people. Yes. <laughs> Explicitly, like no, no black people or people of color of any sort. Yes. Um, that colony also um burned down under suspicious circumstances uh, less than a year. After it was started, um, which was also within a year after Sinclair ran as a socialist candidate for Congress. Hmm. Um, <laughs> I mean, who I, knows? Yeah, who knows? Could have been a million. Yeah, I, I, there, I'm sure there's somebody knows more. I'm sure there's a history there that is interesting. Um, following that, Sinclair spent time in the coal fields of Colorado and wrote King Coal, a novel describing poor working conditions in the coal industry of which there were many. Uh, in 1914, he helped organize demonstrations in New York City against Rockefeller at the Standard Oil offices. Uh, Sinclair broke with the Socialist Party in 1917 to support the, the First World War effort, but by the 1920s, he returned to the party. He twice ran unsuccessfully for United States Congress on the Socialist Party ticket um, in 1920 for the House of Representatives and in 1922 for the Senate. Um, he was also the party candidate for governor of California in 1926 and again in 1930. Mm -hmm. In 1934, he ran for governor of California again, this time on the Democratic Party ticket. His platform, his platform has an amazing name. <laughs> uh, this doesn't seem real. <laughs> his platform 
was known as the End Poverty in California Movement, shortened to Epic. Epic. All right. <laughs> it feels very modern. Yeah, I kind no, of love uh, it. Yeah, that's 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 <laughs> wild. That's hilarious. Um, this was this was his most successful attempt, um, but incumbent governor Frank Miriam still defeated him by a sizable margin. Um, allegedly, Hollywood studio bosses um, also unanimously opposed him and made false propaganda attacking him. Or maybe it wasn't false. Maybe they just told people, hey, this guy really hates Jews. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> at the time, though, would that have been a True. problem? That's true. That actually wouldn't have been the propaganda that didn't. Yeah. Been, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. I, you're, I mean, right, the propaganda right. is this guy's a socialist in the 1930s. But that's not false propaganda. He was running. <laughs> well, he wasn't right. He was running on the Democratic ticket, but he was a socialist. That's not false propaganda. That's just. Well, I don't know. I, 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 I'm just saying they're. There may be false propaganda. I have no idea. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, after his loss, Sinclair abandoned politics to return to writing. In 1935, he published I, Candidate for Governor and How I Got Licked, in which he described the techniques employed against him. Sinclair's line from this book, quote, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it, has become, become well-known um, and, for example, was quoted by Al Gore in An Inconvenient Truth. Yeah. And among, yeah, it's yeah. just a very popular quote. In 1943, he won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for Dragon's Teeth a novel about the Nazi takeover of Germany during the 1930s, um, doing the very on-the-ground covering of that there, apparently, in 1943. He died in 1968 in a nursing home at the age of 90. Um, Sinclair's work was well-known, very popular in the first half of the 20th century, uh, now probably best remembered for The Jungle. Mm -hmm. Many of his novels can be read as historical works, uh, writing during the Progressive Era, uh, Sinclair describes the world of the industrialized United States from both the working man and the industrialist points of view. Um, he, he is considered an early American democratic socialist. Interesting. What an interesting so, fellow. Yeah, very like up and down. Yeah. Kind <laughs> of a kind of an experience Which is, learning you about know, him. Fair that yeah. most people in history are like that, but particularly you go back far. Yeah, it's yeah. Back in the early 1900s, oh, you were anti-Semitic? Like most people were anti-Semitic, so yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, what an interesting guy. Well, let's learn a little bit now about the book we're going to be talking about, which is Oil! Ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled over half our state to be here tonight. I couldn't get away sooner because my new well was coming in at Coyote Hills and I had to see about it. Ladies and gentlemen, if I say I'm an oil man, you will agree. I'm a family man. I run a family business. This is my son and my partner, H.W. Plainview. You boys are a regular family business. Now, you have a great chance here. My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church. And you will be cast up and thrust back to perdition. I'm fixed like no other company in this field. I have a string of tools ready to put to work. That's why I can guarantee to start drilling and to put up the cash to back my word. I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what the others promise to do, when it comes to the showdown, they won't be there. 
I, I somebody tweeted about this, and I replied to them on Twitter today about the exclamation mark in this in the title of this yeah. book. And I I'm very committed to the exclamation mark here. I think it's great. I love it. I think he should have named all of his novels subsequently. I think King Cole should have been Cole. Cole. And I think the jungle should have been meat. Yeah. The tweet, uh, whoever it was there that I, I that, that you're talking about uh, from one of our listeners today cracked me up because they were like it. The oil with the exclamation point makes it sound like a musical. Like it, it does. Like, it sounds like a yeah. Rogers and Hammerstein, yeah. like like Oklahoma. Yeah. Doesn't Oklahoma have an exclamation point? I think it does. Maybe I think not. you're right. I think it does, but I could be wrong. Anyways. Um, so Oil, exclamation mark, is a novel by Upton Sinclair, first published um, 1926 through 1927 and told as a third person narrative. Uh, the book was written in the context of the Harding administration's teapot dome scandal. Uh, quick aside note to provide a crumb of context. Um, for probably everyone. Yeah, so you, I don't remember nah, learning I, about this in school at all. I don't all. either. Probably didn't. Uh, so the Teapot Dome scandal was a bribery scandal involving the administration of United States President Warren G. Harding uh, from 1921 to 1923. Uh, Secretary of the Interior Albert Bacon Fall had least everyone had a great yeah, name really back in did. the day People always had just ridiculous <laughs> names um so he had leased navy petroleum reserves at teapot dome in wyoming as well as two locations in california to private oil companies at low rates without competitive bidding the leases mm. were subject of a seminal investigation by Sen senator thomas j walsh um convicted of a sex uh Convicted of accepting bribes from the oil companies, Fall became the first presidential cabinet member to go to prison. Hmm. Um, so he was supposed to be leasing these uh, petroleum reserves in a particular way, but he was found yeah, guilty of usually of for that kind bribes. of thing. Like I said, without competitive bidding, I think would be the the main thing there. Like yeah. he was like, "Here, you guys have this." Whereas if you were doing that above board, it would be, "Hey, this land is available." Yeah make an offer and then we'll pick you know with the best whatever so yeah um so this book is loosely based on the life of edward l doheny and the company he co-founded yeah i don't know because I, 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 I have I, notes about that guy as well yeah i don't know um pan american petroleum and transport company um the california assets of which became pan american western petroleum company um, and also the Strategic Alliance Union Independent Producers Agency, which was a consortium created in, in 1910 to bring oil via pipeline from Kern County to the Pacific Coast facilities of Union Oil Company at Port Hartford, which is now Port San Luis. My last note here, because there wasn't like a ton of information on this book. Um, oil was banned in Boston for its motel sex scene. Um, okay. Uh, so Sinclair's publisher printed 150 copies of a, quote, leaf fig edition with the offending nine pages blacked out. Um, Sinclair protested the banning and hoped to bring an obscenity case to trial. He did not, but the controversy helped make the book a bestseller. There you go. Nine pages. That's a long sex scene. Yeah. <laughs> Nine <I'm>... pages. 
It's like a whole, that's longer than any sex scene in Fifty Shades of Grey. I feel like it's like a hell of a hell of a sex scene. All right, uh, I'm interested to hear what uh, if you when you read that part, what the heck's going on there? Um, anyways, let's I hope I don't have a fig leaf edition. Oh, that would be very funny. <laughs> let's go ahead now and talk about the adaptation. There will be blood. There's a whole ocean of oil under our feet. No one can get at it except for me. We'll offer 150,000 for full title. When do we get our money, Daniel? <laughs> I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. Don't bully me, Daniel, please! I see the worst in people. We have a sinner with us. Get out of here, devil! I have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I can't keep doing this on my own. with these um, people. There Will Be Blood is a 2007 film written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, hereby after referred to as PTA, because I hate saying his name. Well, I might say Paul Thomas Anderson. Most known for Punch Drunk Love, Boogie Nights, uh, very recently Licorice Pizza, Magnolia, uh, the Phantom Thread, and like every single Hame music video for some reason other than that one that everyone has seen. So, I, he's got like a million, he's directed like, he's directed a fair amount of music videos, but mm-hmm. like every Hame music video, except for the one that I had seen, which I can't remember, I Want You Back, I think is the name of the song. It's the one where they're just walking down the street dancing. Um, like walking down like Hollywood Boulevard or something. He did not direct that one, but like every other one. Uh, and what's your, one of the one of the three one of the women from Hame is the main star in Licorice Pizza. So mm. they have some sort of working relationship. Uh, the film stars Daniel Day Lewis, Paul Dano, Kevin J O'Connor, uh, who is Benny from The Mummy. Mm. If you didn't recognize that name, uh, Kieran Hines, Russell Harvard, Colleen Foy, and Paul F. Tompkins had to mention him because I'm a fan. He's very maybe the funniest man on the planet. The film has a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 93 on Metacritic, and an 8.2 out of I, or an 8.2 on IMDb, which puts it at number 139 on IMDb's top movies Oof, list. No pressure. Yep. Uh, the film won Oscars for Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role for Daniel Day-Lewis and Best Cinematography for Robert Elswit and was nominated for Best Picture, Best Directing, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Editing, Best Art Direction, and Best Sound Editing. The film made $76 million against a budget of $25 million. So, uh, getting into kind of the background here. Author Eric Schlosser had just finished writing an expose called Fast Food Nation, uh, which drew many comparisons from critics and other people to the jungle. Uh, Again, it's like an investigation into like Mm -hmm. fast food industry and all that sort of stuff. Um, And it led Schlosser to reading all of Sinclair's works, including oil, which he ended up loving and decided to purchase the film rights for. Simultaneously, Paul Thomas Anderson was working on a screenplay about two feuding families but was struggling with it and didn't know what he wanted to do with it until he stumbled upon oil. He then contacted Schlosser, who he knew had the, or, you know, after he figured out who had the rights to the film uh, and ended up adapting the first 150 pages of the book into a screenplay. Uh, and I assume worked his previous feuding family script 
kind yeah. of combined those elements um, into one thing. Uh, so Anderson changed the title from oil to there will be blood because he said he felt, quote, there's not enough of the book to feel like it's a proper adaptation, end quote. <laughs> so there you go. But that was interesting. I think he should have made it there will be oil. There will be oil. Exclamation yeah. mark. Yes. Uh, so uh, on writing the screenplay, he said, quote, I can remember the way that my desk looked with so many different scraps of paper and books about the oil industry in the early 20th century mix uh, about the oil industry in the early 20th century mixed in with pieces of other scripts that I'd written. Everything was coming from so many different sources, but the book was a great stepping stone. It was so cohesive the way Upton Sinclair wrote about that period and his experience around the oil fields and these independent oil men. That said, the book is so long that it's only the first couple hundred pages that we ended up using because there was a certain point where he straight really far from what the original story is we were really unfaithful to the book that's not to say i didn't really like the book i loved it but there were so many other things floating around and at a certain point i became aware of the stuff he was basing it on and when he was writing about was the life of, and what he was writing about was the life of oil barons mentioning edward Dohaney and harry sinclair uh so it was really like having a good collaborator the book uh, and Paul Thomas Anderson wrote the script uh, specifically with Daniel Day-Lewis in mind for the lead role and was actually ultimately confident enough to approach him for the part after he heard through the grapevine that Daniel Day-Lewis uh, was a big fan of Punch Drunk Love, hmm. which is one of his earlier films uh, starring uh, Adam Sandler. Many people will say Adam Sandler's best film because that is <laughs> <laughs> um, or at least best, you know, like serious film. Um, so according to Joanne Seller, one of the film's producers, this was a very difficult film to finance because, quote, the studios didn't think it had the scope of a major motion picture. And it ended up taking two years to acquire financing for the film, which is funny because it's not the budget. Twenty five million is like nothing mm -hmm. or it's not nothing, but it's a relatively small budget. So uh, I thought this was really interesting for the role of Plainview's son and Plainview is Daniel Day Lewis's character in the film. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson looked at people in L.A. and New York, but realized that ultimately they needed someone from Texas who knew how to shoot shotguns and, quote, lived in that world. Uh, the filmmakers ended up asking around at a local school and the principal recommended uh, Dylan Frazier, who is the, the kid who would go on to play the role. Uh, they didn't have him read any scenes and instead talked to him and realized just from their conversation that he would be perfect for the role. Uh, and despite positive reviews for his performance in There Will Be Blood, it's his only acting role ever hmm. so far he so did he did continue. one and then he was like nah he was not an actor ahead of time uh they just literally were just like hey some kid. You, some kid you'll be perfect you know how to ride horses or whatever you know you, you like live on a farm in texas um and then he just never acted again after that or at least not yet uh so this is really oh i think i have a note i just wanted to mention the uh speaking of i saw this the uh, the kid's mom, Dylan Frazier's mom, initially, uh, she wanted to know, like, who the actors he would be working with. So they sent her a copy or no. So she found a cop. She watched a copy of Gangs of New York, mm -hmm. which Daniel Day-Lewis is like a, a psychotic killer in that <laughs> film. And she's like, I don't want my son around this guy. <laughs> and then they sent her uh, a different film. It wasn't... Um, I can't remember what it was, but they sent her a film where he's like a, 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 a it's like a romance film where he's mm -hmm. like a gentleman or whatever. It's not uh, the one. Not that, a room with a view. Not a room with a view. But um, 
some other movie that he was in yeah. where he's like a nice guy. And she was like, oh, okay, that's he fine. kind of an just... asshole in a room with a view, too. Yes, that's why <laughs> that's why they wouldn't send that. That's what I'm saying. But it's, it was. It, the, I saw the cover of the film, and I can't remember what it's called for the life of me now. But it looks similar, like a similar time period, mm-hmm. like period piece romance kind of thing. But I think he's like the actual like, like the lead. hero. Yeah, like the the male love interest in it. Anyways. So two weeks into filming, Paul Thomas Anderson uh, made a pretty controversial decision and decided to replace the actor playing Eli Sunday with Paul Dano, who had originally only been cast in this much smaller role of Paul Sunday, the brother who ends up tipping off Plainview about the oil on the Sunday ranch. Um, so in the film, uh, ultimately in the film, Paul Dano ends up playing both characters, I believe, hmm. like twins, essentially. I think I have not seen the film. Um but he is credited for both characters on like IMDb and stuff. But originally he was just supposed to play the smaller part. Um, a profile of Daniel day Lewis in the New York times magazine suggested that the original actor, Kel O'Neill had been intimidated by day Lewis's intensity and habit of staying in character on and offset. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, Daniel Day-Lewis, and O'Neill, the actual actor, have all denied this claim. Uh, And Daniel Day-Lewis stated, quote, I absolutely don't believe that it was because he was intimidated by me. I happen to believe that, and I hope I'm right. Uh, O'Neill described his his dismissal to a poor working relationship with Paul Thomas Anderson and his growing disinterest with acting. Mm. So he was saying, nah, I just, I wasn't giving it my all. We didn't get along, blah, blah, blah. But uh, I don't know why, where the New York Times magazine was like, no, it's because he was scared of <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis. I don't know. I don't know Daniel Day-Lewis, it sounds like, I guess, does method acting. Oh, he's famously, yeah. like, he's, like, the method actor. He's, like, the and guy. I, I feel like, I feel like um, publications sensationalize that yeah. a lot. Yeah, he, he's, yeah, very famously, like, his role every time he's, he, he's, like, super deep method guy and, and mm. can be supposedly a bit of a nightmare to work with. At least a little bit, because he's he's. I mean, a if deep he's method. playing a psychotic yeah. murderer or <laughs> yeah. something, <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, so uh, I thought this was interesting. the uh, The interior mansion scenes in the film were filmed at Greystone Mansion in Beverly Hills, and this was the former real life home of Edward Doheny Jr., uh, the son of Edward Doheny, who mm-hmm. the story is based on. So they actually filmed. It's cool some of the interiors in the home of the son of the guy that it's about basically. So uh, while on location in Marfa, Texas, the film no country for old men was filming like right next to uh, uh, there will be blood. And apparently one day Paul Thomas Anderson and the crew tested pyrotechnicals for one of a fire or something. uh, And it caused this gigantic billowing smoke cloud that ended up, getting into the shot that the Cohen brothers were shooting oh, next no. door and they had to delay filming until the next day when the smoke dissipated <laughs> which I thought was interesting uh, every win- uh, this is all IMDb trivia facts by the way so this may be take this with a grain of salt but, the, but whatever um, every Wednesday night during editing apparently Paul Thomas Anderson and the comp- and uh, his, the rest of the production people that he was there with uh, working through the editing process would have steak and straight vodka for dinner to stay in the mentality of <laughs> Daniel Plainview. apparently Daniel Plainview eats steaks and drinks just straight up vodka for meals or something <sighs> or maybe just on Wednesdays I don't know <laughs> 
Uh, so there's a point in the in the film where Daniel Day Lewis gives a speech um, to the citizens of Little Boston about building schools and bringing bread to the town, and apparently all of that was improvised uh, by Daniel Day Lewis. That was not um, written, uh, and PTA said that uh, it was delicious. It was plain view on a platter. Mm. Uh, so this is the first film uh, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson not to feature Philip Seymour Hoffman, and the only one before Hoffman's death. Um, this is literally the only time he didn't work with him when he could have. Mm. He's been in every one of his other films. Johnny Greenwood uh, did the score for this film uh, of Radiohead fame. He's one of the not he's not the main he's not Tom York, who everybody knows from Radiohead, but the <laughs> other guy, <laughs> the other songwriter in um, in Radiohead. Uh, and he did the score for this film and it was very well received but it was not eligible for best original screenplay or best original score uh, and at the Academy Awards because it incorporates parts of his previous compositions, Popcorn Superhead Receiver and Body Song, as well as what some other title. material composed by Arvo Part and Johannes Brahms. Yeah. Yeah, Popcorn Superhead Receiver, which I listened to that. That's uh, It's an interesting piece. I listened to some of it. It's like 20 minutes long. I listened to the whole thing. Uh, but it is, it's like this very... I don't even know the word for it. Um, atmospheric kind of just like off-putting mm-hmm. strings and which is what the score for this film a lot is. And and actually that was the reason that um, Paul Thomas Anderson wanted him. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson had heard popcorn super hat receiver and was like, I really, uh, this will be, this is the vibe perfect. I want. We love it. Yeah. So that's why he ended up getting him to work on the film. Apparently, Paul Thomas Anderson watched The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is a 1948 film, every night uh, while he was working on the script for this film because it was the the main film that was like inspiration for his um, what he wanted to do with this one, which I have not seen. See, the Treasure this, of the Sierra this, Madre. This is why I I can't make art yeah. to this level. I do n- I do not have the dedication yeah. to watch the same movie every night and eat steak and vodka for dinner. I could do the steak and vodka part. I just don't I think could I could do I the steak part. <laughs> the vodka, no. Uh, so along with his win in 1989, Daniel Day Lewis, uh, when he won for this film, became only the eighth actor to win the Academy Award for Best Actor twice, which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. He actually ended up winning three times because he would later go on to win for Lincoln as well. Mm-hmm. But the other people who had uh, the other men who had won the award were Frederick March, Jack Nicholson, uh, Marlon Brando, Gary Cooper, Tom Hanks, Dustin Hoffman, Spencer Tracy and Sean Penn. Those are all the other people that have won twice or more. I think all of them have won twice. And again, Daniel Day-Lewis would go on to win a third time. Uh, so there's a, I have to include this one cause I thought it was fun. Paul F. Tompkins. Again, he's, if you don't know, Paul F. Tompkins is a comedian, standout comedian. Uh, he, he's probably most known now for his time on a podcast called comedy bang bang, which I'm a big fan of. Um, but he does a lot of, he's like a big improv comedy mm-hmm. guy. Um, and does lots of characters and stuff, but he's in this film and apparently he has a line in the film where he says, we gain nothing by losing our heads. And that was improvised, which makes sense. Cause that's what he does. <laughs> so. Uh, so getting into some, cr- uh, reviews, the critical reception, uh, to there will be blood. There's a lot. Cause this is a very well received film. Andrew Saris called the film quote, an impressive achievement in its confident expertness in rendering the simulated realities of a bygone time and place. I hate the way this guy writes. <laughs> Largely with an inspired use of regional amateur actors and extras with all the right moves and sounds. Uh, in premiere, Glenn Kenny praised uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, saying, quote, Once his plain, plain view takes wing, the relentless focus of the performance makes the character unique. 
Uh, Manola Dargis wrote in her time uh, review for New York Times, the film is above all a consummate work of art, one that transcends the, transcends the historically fraught context of its making, and its pleasures are unapologetically aesthetic. Esquire praised Daniel Day-Lewis's performance, saying, quote, What's most fun, albeit in a frightening way, is watching this grandmeister become more and more unhinged as he locks home, locks horns with Eli Sunday. Both Anderson and Day-Lewis go for broke, but it's a pleasure to be reminded, if only once every four years, that subtlety can be overrated. Uh, Richard Schickel, uh, in Time, praised There Will Be Blood as, quote, one of the most wholly original American movies ever made. Uh, and critic Tom Charity, writing for CNN's 10 Best Films list, called it, quote, the only flat-out masterpiece of 2007. Guy wanted to include a couple people who were a little less positive. Um, they were still positive, but less laudatory. Uh, often criticizing the ending, Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle challenged the film's high praise by saying, quote, there should be no need to pretend there will be blood as a masterpiece just because Anderson sincerely tried to make it one. Uh, and quote, and noting that quote, the scenes between Daniel Day Lewis and Dano ultimately degenerate degenerate into a ridiculous burlesque. So, there you go. I think he's kind of complimenting on or, co or commenting on the same thing the last person said. Uh, it's a pleasure to be reminded if once only if only once every four years that subtlety can be overrated. I think mm. this guy's saying maybe not. <laughs> maybe subtlety is <laughs> he overrated. disagrees. He disagrees. Uh, and then finally, Roger Ebert assigned the film three and a half out of four stars and wrote, quote, There Will Be Blood is the kind of film that is easily called great. I am not sure of its greatness. It was filmed in the same area of Texas used by No Country for Old Men, and that is a great film and a perfect one. But There Will Be Blood is not perfect, and in its imperfections, its un unbending characters, its lack of women or any reflection of my, uh, ordinary society, its ending, its relentlessness, in parenthetical, we may see it reach its reach exceeding its grasp. So he's he says very good, but not 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 you gave it perfect. Three and a half. Yes, out of four. I think he's saying it's not great, and it, like it's not a four star. It's not a four out of four. Okay. Um, and that it has some imperfections. It's unbending characters. It's lack of women or any reflection of ordinary society, and its ending, which for apparently. He was not the only critic to think the ending was maybe not its best part. So we shall see. I've never yeah, seen this. Film, I've never so. seen it either. Before we go, I want to remind you, you can do us a giant favor by heading over to patreon.com slash this film is lit. Support us there. Get access to bonus content uh, at $5 and up a month. Uh, and we just released our episode on Crimson Peak. If you want to hear us talk about Crimson Peak, go check that out. We'll also be releasing an episode about Hellboy here shortly. Uh, and then we'll tell you later on down the road what we're doing for next month or this month, technically, because it's november yeah. now <laughs> but <laughs> anyways uh we will have some more bonus content coming lots of good stuff uh and if you support us at the 15 dollars and up level over on patreon you get access to priority recommendations which this was from jeff niederhofer so thank you jeff for recommending there will be blood uh where can people watch it well as always you can check with your local library or a local video rental store if you still have one Otherwise, you can stream it with a subscription through Paramount Plus, um, Paramount Plus through Amazon or through the Roku channel or through Hoopla. Hoopla. Or you can rent it for around three to four bucks through Amazon, YouTube, Vudu, Redbox, Apple TV, AMC Theaters on Demand, DirecTV, Spectrum TV, or Alamo on Demand. There you go. Uh, as I said, I'm actually very excited to watch this. This is a film that I had always wanted to see and just never got around to because i've always only ever heard great things about it 
Um, I trying to think, I don't, I think gangs in New York is like the only Daniel day. No, I saw Lincoln. I did see Lincoln, but gangs in New York and Lincoln, I think are the only two Daniel day Lewis films I've seen. Well, sorry. We watched a room of the view. Yeah, I, I mean, is it a Daniel? He's Day-Lewis not yet. It's film. not. He's I would say it, that because but... a Daniel day Lewis film with quotes around it is yeah. a very specific thing. And yes. that is, and, and yes, uh, yeah. a room of the view is a room not of the view of is a Helena Bonham Carter. Yes. film. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but this one for sure is, is a Daniel day Lewis film. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested to check it out. Um, Cause again, I think it looks very interesting. I'm excited because I saw that it won for cinematography, and I've heard it's very gorgeous. Uh, and there's a part in the score. I listened to some of the score yesterday that I was like, "Ooh, that's good." I want to see where that plays in the movie. <laughs> in the movie. I, I really like this. So yeah, should be fun. Uh, go check out. There will be blood, and come back in one week's time. We'll, we'll be talking about it. Until that time, guys, gals, and binary pals, and everybody else, keep reading books, watching movies, and, and keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.